Welcome to The Dark Divide, a podcast that takes a seat, dangles its legs over the edge, and stares into the abyss. This is the story of the Weiss supermarket shooting. We all like to think that we know what danger looks like, that danger is predictable, has a certain appearance, gives us a certain feeling. But that isn't always the case. How well do you know your best friend, your neighbor, your coworker, and why would they ever be planning your murder? You know, you see it done so often in movies, people documenting their will on tape and saying things like, if you're watching this, I'm dead. I'm sorry, you know. And honestly, I've envisioned this day coming for as long as 10 years. And I never thought it would come, but here it is. On November 23, 2016, Randy Stair would write the first journal entry of many left behind for us. I hate the fucking world. A line taken from the journal of Columbine shooter Eric Harris. A week earlier, Randy had posted a photo of Harris on Twitter stating, I wish I could have met you, declaring admiration for both him and the second shooter, Dylan Klebold. They were members of an exclusive club made up of those who have caused terror and tragedy in the worst ways, and Randy Stare wanted in. Many entries mirror Harris's sociopathy and narcissism. In a similar fashion, Randy felt evolved and superior compared to everyone else, constantly angry to the brim, full of hatred and disgust for the entire human race. To quote Randy's description, I'm racist, prejudiced, discriminatory, and sexist. It's one hell of a lethal combination. Randy goes on to immediately clarify. Hello, history. My name is Andrew Blaze. Nice to meet you. For years, Randy had felt like a female soul trapped inside a male body, but it wasn't until mid-2015 that she would choose a name. At first, it was a clever way to hide any social media from friends and family, giving her a judgment-free space to share all the dark, depressive thoughts swirling around inside her head. But eventually, Andrew Blaze wasn't just a persona or a character anymore. It was who she truly was. And it was all thanks to Ember McLean, the founding member of the Ghost Squad, that she'd finally found her purpose. For the last four and a half years, Andrew had been battling severe depression. 2013 was a significant year. Andrew's grandfather passed away and also a college classmate who unexpectedly died in a car accident over winter break. This affected Andrew deeply, not only because they were friends, but also, 
A year before, another friend of Andrew's, a classmate from high school, had also died. These events sparked a morbid curiosity. Andrew says something broke in her and nothing was the same from then forward. She began obsessing over death and especially the afterlife. Where were her friends now? When a body becomes heavy and empty, where does the life in them go? It's clear to see the changes in Andrew everywhere, not just her own account through writings and recordings. She began internalizing how she felt, socializing less. Her grades plummeted, and her YouTube videos started morphing into much darker content. Andrew had always been known by a small fan base as a creator who was quirky, silly, and thought extremely outside of the box. But eventually, things just started to get weird. Pioneer Productions, named after a minor league football team Andrew loved, was a channel she started in 2008. At first it was a place for her friends and brother to mess around and film jackass-inspired stunts. Eventually Andrew would take to acting in her own short film-style skits with reoccurring themes and characters. The last series before leaving Pioneer Productions was called Amnesia Rape, a series in which a character, Randy, can talk to inanimate objects in his home, mostly toys. However, when Randy suffers amnesia after dropping a weight on his head, he wakes with no memory as to why these toys can talk. For some reason, this plot twist allows a stuffed whale Teddy to rape Randy while a rubber frog films it. During the rape, Randy regains his memory and is traumatized by the act. He kills both the whale and frog in anger after they upload the video to the internet. Enter Ember McLean, the dark force that has secretly been looming over Randy for years. And eventually, with Ember's guidance, Randy kills himself. Andrew was ready to leave everything about 2013 behind. Frustrated with the lack of growth on Pioneer Productions and feeling stuck in a creative slump, she abandoned it and made a new channel in 2014, dedicated completely to a new series, determined to start fresh. And this was Andrew's favorite year. This was the year she created Ember's Ghost Squad. The animated series was heavily influenced by Danny Phantom, a cartoon about a teenaged human-ghost hybrid. Nickelodeon would run the show for only three years until 2007, but its effect on Andrew lasted much longer. EGS would quickly become the only thing that Andrew cared about, providing her with a sense of peace and acceptance that she so desperately wanted. Ember McLean is a character from Danny Phantom, a high school girl who dies in a house fire and returns as a vengeful, hypnotizing ghost with plans to dominate the world. Ember would be Andrew's first crush, an inspiration to start cross-dressing, and one of the only things in life that Andrew felt she could trust. To Andrew, Ember's Ghost Squad was the perfect example of what the afterlife looked like. The rules were simple. People on Earth are here by contract, and when that contract is up, it's over. If you're lucky enough, you'll be recruited to train for the Ghost Squad. And this is where you'll finally discover who you truly are, with a new name to match. And if you were to ask Andrew why she did what she did, Ember is always the first answer. Ember was always there in this dark place, like I mentioned. She fueled me to do this. I was like, she told me to do this. You know, do it for the Ghost Squad. You know, we need more souls. Kill people. Even though the character Ember wasn't Andrew's idea, 
There are a lot of original characters in the squad. Hundreds of souls all recruited for the purpose of causing destruction and mayhem, and all with haunting backstories. The main players Andrew often talks about are Celestia Reynolds, who died from a drug overdose, Andrew Blaze and Rachel Shadows, two high schoolers who shot up their school together before killing themselves, and Sydney Secor, who died during the shooting by gunshot wounds from either Rachel or Andrew. The main themes of EGS and its characters frequently promote hatred and suicide and violence. The short films would become a way for Andrew to say everything she wanted to say, allowing others to believe it was fiction, but in reality meaning every single word. The most significant member of the squad, besides Ember, is Mackenzie West, a homicide victim brought into EGS against her will and the only ghost who kept her human name. Andrew believes she could talk to the characters of the ghost squad through telepathic powers, but says that 98% of the time, it was Mackenzie. Their bond was unlike anything else. Andrew both worshipped Mackenzie and recognized Mackenzie similar to her true form, a pale and skinny female body, draped in gothic clothing. Andrew would later name one of her guns after the character, showing Mackenzie's significance and involvement in her plans, writing in her journal. She's been the final missing piece besides Columbine. And Andrew believed that once she was dead, they would finally be together. Mackenzie was another reason why I did this, and... You can call me crazy all you want, but spiritually, she's my soulmate. She's my girl. That's who I'm going to spend eternity with, and it's who I've, who I was with before I was sent here. And I rediscovered her last year, and then she just started talking to me in my head ever since. And she was always there for me throughout my life when I didn't even realize it. And I write about her in the journal. I talk about her in these tapes I made before doing this, and... You know, she's my girl. She's my dream girl. It's who I'm going to be with. And ultimately, ultimately, it's what was the final nail in the coffin of ending my life. The reason we know these intimate details about Andrew is because she left behind a massive digital footprint full of files and recordings, both video and audio, scanned journal entries, photographs, unseen EGS footage, basically anything she could think of that she assumed others obsessed with an event like Columbine would want. In a suicide letter style video to her parents, Andrew explains the significance of discovering Columbine in early 2016 describing the shooters as good kids who were misunderstood victims, her heroes, and an inspiration to carry out something even more devastating than just her own suicide. VGS wouldn't be Andrew's claim to fame. Now she realized she could find another way. Andrew wasn't alone when it came to idolizing Eric and Dylan. The term Columbiner is used to describe someone obsessed with the massacre, someone who not only empathizes with the shooters but glorifies them, Many also suffer from mental illness issues and suicidal ideation. Since 1999, there have been over 75 known cases of Columbine copycats, resulting in over 89 deaths and 9 shooter suicides. 
The footprint left by the Columbine shooters no doubt played a role in Andrew's obsession over leaving these materials behind. Andrew relished attention and had grandiose ideas of how she'd be seen when she was dead. Intending to go down in history like her idols, she purchased her first shotgun with the help of her mother. Until discovering the Columbine story, Andrew was completely unaware of how available shotguns were to the general public and how easily accessible they could be for a couple hundred bucks in a phone call. Within a few months of her new interest in mass shootings, she had a Mossberg 500 pump-action 12-gauge shotgun in her possession. Initially, Andrew planned to die by suicide, a desire mainly driven by the thought of becoming a woman again in the afterlife. Before the purchase, Andrew's mother had actually bought her own gun, but Andrew wasn't about to risk surviving a suicide attempt with something she considered to be so small and weak. Staring at the Columbine suicide photo for sometimes hours at a time, she eventually decided to end her life in the same style as Eric Harris, staring down the barrel of a sawed-off shotgun. She'd do it right in her basement bedroom, surrounded by her Disney Pixar posters, My Little Pony collectibles, and drawings of Mackenzie. However, within three weeks, the plans evolved into murder-suicide. Andrew weighed her options. Going back to her old college campus was the ultimate dream. But that place was huge, and being a one-person army, there was no way the death count could total anything worthwhile before security got to her. She could try the Weiss supermarket she worked in. It was always busy enough to put at least several people in her line of fire. But being in an open-carry state, it was risky. Just that past December, a Weiss associate was grazed after a gun carried by a customer accidentally went off at 10 in the morning. Andrew knew that no matter what time she chose, there was always a good chance that a customer would have a gun and take her down. There was no way she was going out like that. Or by cops, either. Andrew held a deep hatred for her boss, Brian, in particular. Brian had worked at Weiss for over a decade, and seven years of that was with Andrew. He was kind to Andrew, often initiating small talk, complaining about company politics and issues higher up the chain. Typical coworker stuff. Once Andrew decided on killing someone else, almost every possible plan involves killing Brian. Drive there, kill Brian and then go home to commit suicide in the basement. No. Kill Brian just before the store opens in the morning. Kill any employees and customers that might be around, and then drive home to commit suicide in the basement. And then it dawned on Andrew. Do it while you're working. During the night shift. The store is closed. The doors are locked. Everyone is alone and there'd be no risk of getting taken down before finishing what she believed was her sole contract mission. In Andrew's words, it was a fucking freebie. And even though the supermarket wasn't the ideal place to die, she would shoot herself in aisle one with the canned goods. This area of the store was where Andrew worked the most often, and it also reminded her of the bookshelf behind Dylan and Eric in their suicide photo. A few days after the anniversary of the Columbine shooting in April 2017, Andrew secretly purchased a second shotgun 
which she kept hidden in the trunk of her car and eventually right under her bed. Not only did she need more target practice, but she wasn't about to risk a gun jamming in the middle of her mayhem. Two were necessary, minimum, along with plans to blow up propane tanks and cause severe destruction to the store. She would begin going to the range secretly and as often as possible, ordering bullets by the hundreds online and buying dozens of V8 juice by the gallon, imagining it was the brains and blood of everyone she hated as it cast off plastic and red liquid into the air. The first time she pulled the trigger and felt that power, she knew it was her ticket out of here. Writing in her journal that day, guns. The best damn thing society ever invented. I just, I can't believe how easy it is to get firearms. It is insanely easy. As long as you don't have a record, you know, if you don't have a criminal background, you know, or any running with the law or anything of that sort, you know, and you're a legal immigrant and all that, you could just order online and pick it up at a dealership. It is that fucking easy. Within a month, I got two shotguns. Two shotguns in a month. Unlike her father, Andrew felt like she could talk to her mother about herself and her hobbies. They'd often end up on the subject of guns, but this was no cause for alarm. Liking guns isn't strange for anyone in a place like Dallas, Pennsylvania. Being a small town in an open carry state, it's actually surprising that Andrew thought about suicide methods like jumping from a roof or setting herself on fire first before choosing a shotgun. That was the guaranteed option she'd been waiting for. Andrew would later write to her mother in a journal entry, You were a fool. You were a complete fool to trust me with guns. In one of her video diaries, she's at the shooting range with her new shotgun for the first time. Her mother is filming, with occasional reactions in the background. After the first shot, Andrew turns around and beams a big smile at the camera, also showing more clearly the words natural selection, written in black on her white t-shirt. That's the shirt Eric Harris wore when he killed people. Dylan had a shirt that said Wrath on it. But Eric Harris had a white t-shirt, black text, natural selection. And I bought fucking three of them. Yet none of you knew what it meant, which blew my mind. I didn't want to tell you that. So I kept that under wraps. But blew my mind. None of you knew what it was. That's a warning sign. Later, Andrew would take another influence from Eric Harris by covering her gun grips with duct tape. With the combination of the kickback, as well as hours and hours of daily practice, shooting hundreds of rounds at a time, her hands were regularly covered in blisters and bruises. She recalls this in the suicide video to her parents. I told mom, I could tell you where I learned that tip from, but I won't. Apparently, Andrew's mother wasn't one to question because she didn't question this. She didn't question why her child wanted such a powerful firearm. As far as she knew, 
Her child was withdrawn and struggling enough as it was, and she didn't want to risk losing what small bond they did have. She did what any good mother would do. She tried to support her child's interests and hobbies, thankful for the chance when that also felt like it brought them closer or, in the least, she could be included somehow. It's easy to point fingers here, but there's something to be said for how good of a job Andrew did when it came to lying. A kid who's a little more quiet and antisocial than what you'd expect isn't an instant call of danger. There was no reason to question her actions or search her room. Andrew made sure to put energy and effort into keeping up appearances. The last thing she needed was a small slip of saying too much and having someone report her when she was so close. She was careful to only cross-dress on Wednesdays when her whole family was at their bowling league. She still spent the occasional afternoon watching Cowboys games with her brother. She did what she had to regarding work to keep her father happy, who she viewed as demanding and cold, talking to her only about the weather and moving out. Honestly, what many fathers of a 24-year-old child still living at home would most likely bring up, possibly disappointed with their lack of motivation to take care of themselves. Not every person with unquestioning parents is plotting out a murder scheme behind closed doors. Not every seemingly hard-ass dad and naive mother combination means disaster. I imagine that in the same way many of us assume we won't be shot in a supermarket on a daily basis, they assume their child was not a shooter. The two-hour video she made them was more explanation than goodbye. The Andrew Blaze we see on these tapes is not at all the person they lived with. As far as they knew, Andrew was quiet and sometimes struggled with authority, and to put it bluntly, getting her shit together and getting out of the house. So for as encouraging as Lorianne and Robert Stare might appear when it comes to Andrew's behavior, they were just as utterly clueless as everyone else about who they knew as Randy and what was to come. Throughout the months, Andrew would share her process of how and when and where. Planning to upload everything to the public right before she'd carry out her plot of destruction, she viewed every piece as a chapter of a legacy. By the time she had her second shotgun, she was regularly filming vlog-style videos explaining every aspect, every challenge, and every change. She gathered everything involving EGS that she could, she scanned and saved her journal entries, explaining her plans, her reasoning, and all the darkest thoughts she'd been holding in for so long. Not only was she inspired by the journal writings left behind by Eric Harris, she knew that there was only a limited amount of vague information she could share online without alarming anyone else. Andrew often did this through Twitter accounts made for the EGS characters. It seemed like most people assumed Andrew was running the multiple accounts, but if you outright asked, the reply would go something like, No, I'm Andrew's friend Mackenzie. The manifesto-like collection begins with a letter titled, Please Read, where she explains the importance of everything left behind. I know this is scary to some of you, but this is what the world does to certain people. We just need to get out. And it's here we begin to see, with our own eyes, a person slowly reaching a psychotic point of no return. For the viewer, it's difficult to imagine how nobody else could predict the train wreck about to come. But Andrew always made sure to maintain the mask. It didn't take many small mistakes to learn what you had to do and say to get by as a regular person. 
Even though Andrew says people like she and Eric Harris aren't psychopaths, it's clear that there was some level of self-awareness regarding her state of mind. On a website she created for EGS, Andrew listed the character Randy Stare slash Andrew Blaze as possibly having an undiagnosed personality disorder. And even though Andrew explains in her videos that it's as if she was born without something, getting help wasn't an option. She wasn't about to get locked up and medicated for it. In the same way that she felt taking hormones or having gender reassignment surgery wouldn't truly be her, neither would that. There are hours of footage and recordings, documenting periods of time Andrew viewed as significant. She explains her childhood, her experiences with high school and college, every detail imaginable about the Ghost Squad, and of course, all the reasons about why she's going to take her own life, and why just her own life isn't enough. Eventually, you realize Andrew's account is as much an answer as it is a question. There are times when even she doesn't understand why she's doing what she's doing, or why she can't seem to care about the things everyone else seems so wrapped up in. She mentions some of the ripple effects of Columbine, like suicide awareness, more safety in schools, discussions over gun laws. During the moments when Andrew has no clue as to what this was all for, she'd leave it up to the future and fate. People would take whatever they wanted from this. People will, like, try to prevent this from happening in the future, you know? Well, that's the fact of the matter of it all. You can't prevent it. You can only endure it. Shootings are going to happen. You can't prevent mass shootings. That's inevitable. But in terms of, like, slowing them down or stopping them, this might be an eye-opener for people, you know? Maybe, like, live video feed would help. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> How can you prevent a shooter? You can't. We also get an extremely intimate view of her life in a way only Andrew could have demonstrated herself. Andrew devotes an entire video to a tour of her family home, explaining significances and memories attached to household items. Even here, she seems completely unemotional to the thought of leaving everyone and everything she'd ever known. It's almost as if peering through a lens made it all that more like a movie instead of real life. This vlog is one of the most haunting because it's the most human. Andrew pans back and forth to give us a view of a beautiful white house and a welcoming driveway leading to a pool, a garden, a front deck a back porch and a huge backyard surrounded by nature. It looks like somewhere you'd love to come home to. If someone were to guess which houses were holding devastating secrets, this one probably wouldn't make the cut. As she makes her way through the room, she's almost sweet when interacting with her dog, Ginger, who lovingly follows her everywhere. While in his room, she describes her relationship with her brother, Jeremy, pleasantly, explaining that he's also suffered from anxiety and depression, but you don't get the feeling that this was a topic they bonded over. They used to hang out all the time as kids, but like many siblings with jobs and different interests, their connection became less solid as they grew older. And there was also an added strain because Jeremy had a strong relationship with their father. Where they had overlapping interests, Andrew had none. In contrast, Andrew refers to her mother, Lorianne, as having a bread and butter type relationship. 
However, you do get the impression that she was just as uncomfortable, if not fearful, of her husband's reactions. Being much less strict of the two, whenever Andrew had done something that was sure to send her father into a fury, she'd break the news to her mother first, and they'd deliver it like a team. Even though Andrew seemed to feel a strong sense of support, she never describes her mother as someone to stand ground or fight for her. Still, that effort didn't go unnoticed. On May 28th, Andrew treated her mother to Olive Garden, something she'd never done for either of her parents before. She ordered chicken scampi with salad and drank two Miller Lights. It was actually the first decent meal that Andrew'd had in weeks. They joked and laughed and talked. Andrew made a conscious effort to make her mother happy, knowing full well this was the last time they'd ever do anything like this. Then Andrew went home and wrote about it in her journal, also including how much she wanted to die and was sick of waiting for it. One can only imagine how opposite that experience was for Lorianne. Less than two weeks later, her child would disappear from her life forever. Andrew's father, Robert, is a topic which almost always immediately triggers rage. Because Andrew didn't give a shit about making money and moving out, or sports, and her father didn't exactly connect with YouTube and EGS, any bond they had began to fade, and eventually by high school, most conversations would end with an argument or awkward silence. Andrew recalls a specific night with her father several times in different videos. On this particular occasion, they'd gone to dinner alone, and although she tried to avoid it, the conversation soon ended up on the job talk. Unsatisfied with her lack of direction and part-time work that wasn't providing her with opportunities, her father made it clear that she needed to secure full-time employment by October, yelling over the pub music, letting everyone else at the bar know he was sick of the same old excuses. With nobody else in her corner, Andrew couldn't win this one. Surrounded by strangers giving side glances, she felt her face get hot with shame and embarrassment. She was too angry and felt too little to reply, her twisted stomach uninterested in food now. She addresses her father one final time in the video after recalling this. I hated you that day, and I hated you ever since. And I would have killed you myself. But I want you to suffer. Working night shift wasn't ideal for a social life, but Andrew had little desire to interact with people outside of her small online network. It doesn't take long to realize she had little to no use for anybody who wasn't working on or promoting EGS. She was interested in herself, and made sure to keep around like-minded people who inflated her ego. Later, many will be confused and even outraged as to why nobody in Andrew's life lifted a finger to prevent this, or felt even an ounce of suspicion. But Andrew was extremely professional in communications to those she viewed as colleagues, like animators and voice actors. And when it came to making friends online, she chose people already a part of her fan base, mostly teenagers, many with similar views on Columbine and depression. There were a few people she could truly confide in, but it's unclear if she went as far to share her plans of killing with anyone. One of her closest online friends, Rachel, was the only one aware of the secretly purchased second shotgun. And it can't be said for sure if she knew the details about what exactly that gun might be for. 
but she felt no need to report it. If she had, things may have gone very differently. But Rachel appears to have been too wrapped up in Andrew to ever risk losing what she called a rare connection, making dozens of EGS-inspired fan art, and never choosing to take Andrew's constant hints at suicide seriously. Even when people were worried, Andrew wasn't stupid about covering her tracks and made sure to manipulate all social situations like a puppet master, never telling too much, reassuring them it was just meaningless venting and thanking them for giving her the room to just be herself. To a lot of people, that's the point of online relationships. You can let the walls down, share your secrets, say what you're really thinking. Andrew was grateful for anyone who would listen to her problems and complaints. However, any possibility of sincere friendship is often shadowed with her judgment. For as much as she may have appeared to care about them, in one of her videos she lists them off one by one, reciting their struggles like weaknesses and criticizing them for their sexuality, methods of self-harm, and their general mopey attitudes about life. As far as Andrew was concerned, these people didn't know a thing about depression. Nobody had it as bad as she did. When it comes to romantic relationships, Andrew couldn't be bothered. Identifying as a straight virgin who hated homosexuals and also thought sex itself was disgusting, she'd never been on a date. Before Ember and Mackenzie, Andrew recalls looking at women and visualizing being them, but never having any desire to date them. However, she did write about having fantasies of killing girls, laying their bodies on top of her own, and absorbing their femme traits. Andrew also wrote about secretly masturbating during classes in high school on five or six different occasions. She would also masturbate at work, having done so over a dozen times. The details of why aren't clear, and she doesn't explain further. Sex is about the only subject she never expands on. All Andrew wanted and needed was Mackenzie West. There was no human on Earth who could compare to her, and it was pointless to try. This place held nothing for Andrew, and if it took death to return to what loved her back the best, death was easy. Death was a prize. After 24 years of isolation and despair, this was how Andrew would finally be home and happy. The vlogs become redundant as Andrew goes over her plans and reasonings and obsessions again and again and again. At times, what used to feel significant almost becomes meaningless or boring, even to her. Nearing the end, Andrew's ready to kill over wrong orders at Taco Bell and shitty drivers. Her writing is almost illegible in her journal, sloppy and hard-pressed to the page. She's angry, impatient. She's barely eating or sleeping. All she can think about is suicide. All she can think about is how badly she wants to die. Since her favorite number seven, September 7th, just 10 days before her 25th birthday, had seemed like the perfect date. But by the beginning of June, she's lost most of her ability to cope. She's anxious about being switched to day shift. Brian's talking more and more about finally quitting soon. The 7th of June would have to do. 
She didn't feel completely ready, but she also couldn't wait anymore. By the beginning of June, she's made her final plan. Kill her boss, Brian, during the night shift, and then kill herself, expecting maybe one or two other employees to go down in the midst. She was always the last to return from the first break, being the one to lock the doors and reset the alarm. Nobody would notice if she took a little extra time to load her shotguns, pack up her ammunition, gather propane tanks, and block an exit with her car. She'd return to block all the other exits with giant wooden pallets they had in the shipping area. And since everyone will be busy throughout the aisles with no real reason to go anywhere else, that will give her time to upload her files and send the dozen or so suicide emails that she had waiting in her drafts folder. After months and months of obsessive planning, Andrew estimated the whole thing would take about five to ten minutes, tops. The only detail left was how to film the shooting itself. She considered filming it on her phone and sending it to Rachel, but the file would be too large. There was no way a Facebook Live would work. Getting reported before finishing was too risky. I'll try to do my best to get something, you guys, Andrew says to the camera during one of her drives. She does this regularly driving around her county for sometimes hours at a time, going to the same places over and over, singing to Green Day and Queen, trying to get out of her head. She continues, There's probably going to be some good stuff on the CCTV footage, but there's no way they'll ever release that. Andrew had absolutely no emotion when it came to talking about her co-workers or their impending death, just a sense of frustration surrounding her forlorn attempt to put on a good show. Once Andrew has the upcoming shift schedule, she can really begin to plot out the specifics. She knows now that five people, including herself, will be working and spends her evenings observing their behaviors, noting when they take their breaks and where, planning out the best time to launch her attack. During one of her car rides, she talks about taking them down one at a time, like they're no different than targets at the range. Andrew wasn't sure if she'd kill everyone. Four people didn't leave much to spare, but she was frustrated by the idea of not having any witnesses. Ideally, she wanted at least one person to tell the tale of her terror, in case she couldn't get out the footage or something went wrong. She contemplates just wounding Victoria, a co-worker who had actually been pretty friendly to Andrew, and supportive enough to even slap a couple EGS stickers on the back of her car. Andrew specifies, I don't hate you, Victoria, but you gotta go and explains that she'll probably survive, but only because she deserves to suffer. Kristen will be there, most likely labeling items with Victoria, so she'll be an easy target and impossible to miss. It's never really clear why the number one target is Brian. At some points, Andrew is overcome with hatred towards Brian, and other times talks as if she feels for the guy, like she's doing him a favor and putting him out of his misery. One can only guess Andrew saw more likeness to her and Brian than not. After all, he was a manager of a supermarket like Andrew's father. And similarly, Andrew describes both of them as dissatisfied with their careers but resistant to changing anything. If Andrew had it her way, she'd be able to stay home all day and work on EGS until she got famous. Unlike these losers, she had a passion and a purpose. She hated the monotonous view of responsibility and apathy that Brian and her father displayed to her. These weren't the things she desired in life. She didn't want to be like her father, she didn't want to be like Brian, and she'd punish them both for trying to put that on her. 
There would also be Terry, who she refers to as the floor guy, cleaning with the buffer machine. Having nothing much to say about him, she notes of course he'll be dead too, but that's just a given, as if it meant nothing. The callous disregard in her is almost palpable as she mulls over the different outcomes. It's crazy, she says to the camera. To just think, in a week, they'll all be dead. As if a storm is headed their way, predicted by the weather, but out of her control. And as far as she was concerned, this was out of her hands. Back on April 25th, she had filmed herself flipping a coin in her backyard to help finalize her decision. Heads, home. Tails, supermarket. See? It was simple. It was fate. This had to happen. And it had to happen this way. Andrew's final project for her YouTube channel was as big of an obsession as the supermarket plan, if not bigger. Inspired by the Columbine footage, she wanted to create something epic to accompany her shooting that would help EGS finally make a mark on the world forever. The destructive fates of Rachel Shadows and Andrew Blaze would finally come to life on screen in what she called the Westboro High Massacre. In March, she contacted the best animators and voice actors she knew to help her. But by the beginning of June, Andrew was sick and tired of waiting to be sent the final pieces and decided to throw it together herself, admitting it would be sloppier and more mediocre than she intended. At least one of her favorite voice actors, Laura, had finally gotten her Rachel's lines. The average person might find the script disturbing, to say the least, but in a world of voice acting for video games and digital shorts, Laura had said a lot of weird things and didn't think much of it. She'd done similar work for Andrew before, so this was nothing new. It wouldn't be until reading Andrew's goodbye email on the morning of June 8th would she discover her involvement in something so much more sinister than she ever imagined. The final result begins with a note on the screen to everyone who'd left Andrew waiting. To all you people who screwed me over on this video and left me hanging, fuck you. To all the animators who agreed to work with me and shoved me aside like I didn't matter, fuck you. This was meant to be something spectacular, and all you did was crush my dreams for it. This was going to be something amazing. This was going to be something unique. And in the end, what do I have? Hardly anything. Thanks to you good-for-nothing fucking faggots. Just fucking die. I'm gonna be dead by the time you see this video. Congratulations, you fucking blew it. I hope you forever rethink what gets sent to you from now on. I hope you forever have the weight of the world crushing your fucking spine into the pavement. You can kiss my deceased white female ass. And to all the fans who care about me, some of the answers you're looking for are in the Andrew Blaze suicide tapes. I'm not sorry about this either. The video splits between repeated animation clips and real footage Andrew recorded in her bedroom at the last minute. It begins with a montage of her gearing up with clothes and guns, showing clips of EGS posters in her room, and footage of the Weiss supermarket aisles. If you didn't know anything about Andrew, the clips seem almost nonsensical. Handing over cigarettes and bras, 
fan art made by subscribers from her channel, lists of people to kill, beer bottles and bullets. Eventually the animation kicks in and Rachel and Andrew are at Westboro High, shooting everyone they can and yelling obscenities through the halls at the students who made fun of them. On the evening of June 7th, just before heading into work, Andrew tweeted, It's our time to rise. Rachel responded to that tweet, Two hours to go, with a smiling devil emoji. Andrew had been working on getting her audience hyped for the midnight release, so Rachel was most likely excited about the EGS video and not an actual shooting, although we obviously can't know for sure. Like many of Andrew's online friends, she would later delete her social media accounts after receiving numerous attacks and threats for not stopping Andrew and possibly being in on the scheme in some capacity. At 12.09 a.m., Andrew tweeted links to the massacre video, media links to her journal, and also the videos she recorded, which she called the suicide tapes. The waiting. The planning. It had all come down to this moment. She posted a cartoon picture of the characters Mackenzie and Andrew Blaze on her Instagram account with the caption, Together. Forever. Brian and Terry, Victoria and Kristen, they were all working out on the floor, scattered between aisles holding narrow vision, unaware that these last few minutes would be all they had left. They'd never see her coming. Every vicious ache that had been festering inside of Andrew was about to be unleashed on them. After only 24 years on Earth, Andrew was ready to go back to the world where she belonged, prepared to take whoever she could down with her. <laughs> 